Audio Parfait. Just a little uh, context of what's going on now. My beautiful wife has been having uh, some minor medical issues. Uh, nothing that we all need to be too worried about, hopefully. But she has to wear a heart monitor for the next month. A cardiac event monitor, yeah. not a heart monitor. So um, if you hear any weird wobbles or digital bullshit going on, it's there's a signal being passed from her monitor to this stupid fucking little cell phone thing that they gave her that keeps going off so if you hear any of that uh we apologize but uh, it's for her health so if you got a problem with it fuck off (laughs) yes but um aside from that we are on episode two of the william s burroughs series yes and uh when we last left off he just moved to new york again Again, um, this time with uh, Lucian Carr and David Kammerer. Uh, so let, let's get into uh, where he was staying. Uh, Burroughs had found a place on what is now one of the most attractive streets in Gre- uh, Greenwich Village. Or is it Greenwich Village? Greenwich. Greenwich. It's spelled Greenwich. Yeah. But like, it's... San- but like Sandwich, but it's Greenwich. Yeah, it's not Sandwich. Okay, so yeah, Greenwich Village. All right. Uh, Burroughs quickly settled into something of a routine. Drinks before dinner, followed by wine with dinner. Uh, Lee Chumley's uh, former speakeasy at 86 Bedford, Bedford Street was just up the street from Bill's. There was no exterior sign, and in Prohibition days, the customers entered through an unmarked entrance on Barrow Street via a nondescript courtyard entrance called the Garden Door. Now, for all of you restaurant tours, bartenders, waiters, uh, cooks out there, my Stephanie, you used to cook at a restaurant. Um, if you ever wanted to know where the term came from, when uh, police would give advanced warning of a raid, they would tell Leland Chumley to 86 his customers, meaning they should go leave through the Bedford Street door uh, while cops came in the garden door. So that's where the term 86 came from if you ever had 86 uh, an item off your menu oh that's uh-huh. very interesting yeah i know i i had no idea where that came from i had heard it all the time as much as we watch like hell's kitchen and shit like that i had heard the the phrase 86 i had no idea why it was called 86 and now we all know yeah that's kind of weird but let's see what else he kind of fucks up in his life <laughs> uh it was through david Cameron that Burroughs met Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, Allen number two. Uh, Lucian at met Edie Parker in September 1943. Lucian introduced Edie to his girlfriend, Celine Young. All of these people are going to play a part. I'm not going to tell you anybody who doesn't play a part. If, if they're in here, they play a, a fairly significant part. Joan Volmer was born February 4th, 1923 in Ossining, Ossining, Westchester, New York, and raised in Loudonville, an exclusive suburb 
suburb north of Albany. She was married to a Columbia Law student, Paul, Ab Paul Adams, who was now in the Army doing basic training in Mississippi. She had regretted the marriage from the very first day, so though technically married, they were no longer a couple. She did, however, receive his military allotment checks, in which, which, in addition to a generous allowance from her father, allowed her to live well. Are you seeing an ongoing pattern with this group of people? None of them worked, and they all got money for free from their parents. Every, or... Pretty much everybody gets taken care of. I think Allen Ginsberg is probably the only one out of this whole group that doesn't mooch off of his parents. Jack Kerouac is a huge mama's boy, and it breaks up his relationship with bros later on. He's a huge fucking mama's boy. I cannot stand Jack Kerouac. Cannot stand him. To the point where we probably won't even do an episode on him because he just he's so just boring. Because he's just a mama's boy. So oh. is Burroughs. So is Bur but Burroughs leads an interesting life. Kerouac at the end of it just goes back and lives with his mom and mooches off of her until he dies. Anyway, um, so in those days, Joan dressed fashionably, enjoyed a complicated love life. This would all change. Uh, and in November 1943, Joan discovered she was pregnant. Uh, not her husband's child. Of course. Yeah. Uh, Joan returned to Albany and to have her child, and on June 24th, 1944, gave birth to Julie. Uh, Joan spent much of her pregnancy with her parents, and then after Julie was born, remained with them upstate to spend the summer months with Julie away from the city heat. Now you might be asking, why am I telling you about Joan Vollmer in such great detail? You'll find out. Yay. Yay. A mystery. Uh, a few days before Christmas, 1943, Lucian Carr was in his room on the seventh floor of the Union Theological Seminary. Most of the boarders uh, had gone home for vacation, so he was surprised when someone knocked on his door. He had been playing music, and it was a stranger from down the hall wanting to know what he was playing. Quote, I thought it might be Brahms Trio Number 1, Vedred the Young, Allen Ginsberg. That summer, the group, consisting of Lucian Carr, Celine Young, David Kammerer, Edie Parker, Jack Kerouac, Ruth Louise McMahon, a lesbian who lived upstairs from David, and Allen Ginsberg could be found most nights in a booth at the West End with Lucian sporting a red bandana, very much their leader, drinking and imagining themselves in Paris. Burroughs had now met all of them except for Joan, but he was not yet part of the group. They were a good 10 years younger than him, 10 years younger than David too, but he... Uh, he kind of stayed on the fringes of the group just so he could keep an eye on Lucian. Um, Bill was, uh, he was still living in Greenwich Village and was unlikely to make a hundred block subway ride unless they had arranged it for him. Um, David became more and more obsessed and aggressive over time with Lucian. David's behavior was beginning to scare him. That's how it usually is with, uh, obsessive people it starts off small yeah it, and then it equals and then it, it ends up uh, somebody ends up dying usually from it it's like that mariah carey song boy why are you so obsessed with me wasn't that about eminem yeah oh. <laughs> uh okay so i told you there was going to be a big thing that happens that uh leads to him writing again here it is okay the night of Sunday, August 13th, 1944, David had located Lucian in the West End 
where he had gone after dropping off Celine. Lucian was already very drunk. When the West End closed at 3 a.m., they took a bottle and walked over near the Hudson River. Lucian told Gidsburg that David insisted that he let him give him a blowjob. And in, and in the ensuing struggle, Lucian pulled out a scout knife with a two-inch blade and stabbed him. This was basically the story used in court, but Lucian also claims that David had threatened to injure Celine if he did not let David blow him. Lucian later told Burroughs that he had been so angry, he told David, quote, I could kill you. And David replied, well, why don't you then? And Lucian did. Lucian stabbed him 12 times in the heart. Then he tore David's white shirt into strips, tied rocks up with the strips, which he attached to Kramer's arms and legs. He pushed rocks down his trouser legs and fastened his arms with his belt. But it was all hasty, inept, panicky, and most of the rocks fell out. Lucian pushed him in, but he wouldn't sink. The body floated off downstream, face down, Burroughs was woken at dawn on Monday by an urgent tapping at his door. Lucian was agitated and incoherent. Lucian gave him a garbled, still drunken account of events. Bill told him to turn himself in, that he could pass, he could plead some sort of self-defense. Lucian kept repeating, I'll get the hot seat. But Bill paced the room, quote, Don't be absurd. Turn yourself in. Get a good lawyer. Do what he tells you to do. Say what he tells you to say. You'll make a case for self-defense. It's pretty absurd, but juries have swallowed bigger ones than that. After Lucian left Bill's, Bill, distressed, then walked over to Morton Street to see if David had come home. His room was empty. That afternoon, Lucian, accompanied by his lawyer, Vincent J. Malone, presented himself at the office of the district attorney. There was no body, and no one had reported Kamer missing, so police didn't believe him. Lucian was kept in custody at the DA's office. 2.30 p.m. on the 15th, on 15th, at 2.30 p.m. on the 15th, the Coast Guard reported a body floating off 108th Street. A shaky Lucian identified the bloated corpse and was taken straight away to the Elizabeth Street Police Station and booked on a homicide charge. The next morning, the New York World-Telegram headline read, Student Admits Killing Teacher. Yeah, but teacher deserved it. <clears throat> uh, do you deserve to get stabbed 12 times in the heart just because you want to give a guy a blowjob? I mean, he followed him everywhere. Yeah, he did follow him everywhere. But see, that's, that, that's the thing. The, Lucian wanted that father figure. He actually liked having David around. They were actually really good friends. But Dave was getting more and more obsessed. It was, it was one of those things where they'd go to the bar Whoever was sitting next to Lucian, David would kind of wait in the shadows. And the second that person sitting next to him would get up, David would run in there and sit right next to him. Yeah, that's... Or, not... or when Lucian would get up, he'd run right there, take Lucian's seat, and start asking people what they were talking about, if he was talking about him and all that stuff. Kind of like junior high bullshit. He was obsessed. And so... And that wasn't the first time he's tried to... Get no, a sexual favor from No, him. there's another story where Lucian wakes up in the middle of the night to look up and David's hovering over him. He had broken into his apartment and uh, wasn't going to hurt him, don't think, but uh, was just hovering over him drunk. And he ended up having to go to, he ended up going to jail for a couple nights for breaking for uh, breaking and entering. So it, it was getting complicated. 
I don't know if I would say he deserved to die for it, but he definitely should have been a restraining order should have been in place, and he probably should have gone to jail for some of the stuff he did. Um, but I mean, if Lucian really felt like he was going to hurt Celine, I mean, if somebody was to threaten to hurt you, I I could probably lose it and stab him in the heart twelve times. Aww, yeah. Hearing that the police were looking for him, Bill presented himself the next day at the DA's office with his lawyer in tow to give his deposition. Bill was formally arrested as a material witness. He was held for eight hours in the city prison, the Tombs, and was bailed out the same night by Moat, who flew in and paid the $2,500 bond. Bill flew back to St. Louis with his father. So there, there again, parents coming to bail him out. Mommy and daddy right there. Yeah. But in this case, he didn't really do anything. He was the one who told Lucian to turn himself in, which he'll actually feel bad. Uh, I'll get to here in a second about telling him to turn himself in because nobody knew really knew who he was. Nobody could identify him because he was all bloated from being in the river. So he, Lucian could have got away with murder and nobody would have found out. It's kind of Bill's fault that he went that he got arrested. But he didn't really do anything wrong. He told his friend to turn himself in, and but he didn't go to the police. But this is one of the few times where him getting bailed out by his parents doesn't really seem like that big a deal because he didn't do anything. Yeah. It's not but, his fault. But, I mean, being arrested to as a material witness, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, as can be imagined, the West End group could talk of little else other than the subject of Kammerer's death and Lucian's sentencing. Lucian served just under two years in prison for murder. Uh, his, his sentence being cut short based on good behavior. If he had been a troublemaker, he could have got as many as 15 years in Sing Sing. So he Ooh. got off. For, well, the thing was, the judge said, listen, you're young. You made a stupid mistake. The uh, His lawyer presented this stuff about how he was drinking since he was at a young age. This other guy was obsessive and abusive. And he was protecting himself, and the judge said, "Okay, you know what? If if you're really good, then I'll let you get off with 18 months. If you really, if you don't do the rehabilitation that we put you through for alcoholism and, and drug use, um, and you don't do everything I asked you to do, you will spend the next 15 years in a sing sing, which is a horrible fucking prison." So he was really good, did everything they told him to fucking do, and he was out in less than about 18 months. So. After Lucian's trial, Burroughs spent several months in St. Louis with his parents, only returning to New York City in December to be psychoanalyzed. Edie Parker maintains that his parents made his monthly allowance conditional upon his attending his uh, analysis regularly. Which, I mean, I don't think you should have cut him off a long time ago, but at least you're making him, you know, go through, you know, analysis. Yeah, but if he's not being medicated, it's pointless. He started seeing Dr. Lewis R. Wahlberg, a not 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 like Danny Wahlberg or Mark Wahlberg, Wahlberg. Uh, he was a uh, hypnoanalyst and a specialist in the recall of buried memories. Burroughs was resistant to hypnosis, and in these case, Wahlberg used narcoanalysis instead of nitrous oxide or sodium pentothal, pentothal, pentothal to get him to uh, state to get him to a state between walking and sleeping. 
The treatment revealed various identities or alter egos that all appeared to mirror his family upbringing. There was an English identity uh, derived from his Welsh nanny and his own ancestors. A Southern gentleman, which was not surprising as his whole upbringing was white Southern. A black man, which also related to his Southern upbringing and black servants. And what Bill saw to be his ultimate persona, a silent, starving, skull-headed, yellow-skinned Chinese man. Wait, how how was he a Southern man? He was from St. Louis. Yeah, but uh, his grandparents were from Georgia. And he was around his grandparents quite a bit. Okay, okay. Uh, he did some talking in accents, but uh, imitations of other accents and mimicries had always been one of his specialties from his college days, and these were later carried into his writings. So it's questionable on whether or not these were real split personalities or just shit he was coming up with on the fly to make himself either seem more interesting or find out something about himself. But they do come later into play because they, they fuck around with these split personalities a lot when they're screwing around in the Beak Hotel, which okay. we'll get to later. Okay, so now he's schizophrenic and has split personality disorder. Apparently. When Burroughs returned to New York from St. Louis, he contracted he contacted Ginsburg, who told him that Kerouac was living in the same building. Bill told uh, Bill took them to dinner. Until then, Burroughs had always remained in the background, meekly accompanying Kramer in his endless quest to find where Lucian was. But with Lucian away, both Alan and Jack felt adrift and lacking in a mentor. This led them to visit Burroughs with the conscious intention of finding the source of Lucian's ideas, or as Ginsburg put it, to investigate his soul. Burroughs, that was weird. Yeah, Burroughs quickly replaced Lucian Carr as the leader or mentor of the Columbia Group. They discussed art, literature, and he soon introduced them to his other interests, psychotherapy, weapons, low life, and nostalgia de la boue, or nostalgia for the mud. Burroughs, hmm. huh? I said, hmm. Yeah. Burroughs always credited Kerouac with encourage him, encouraging him to become a writer. Jack had been working on a text based on Kramer's killing called I Wish I Were You. He showed a short version to Burroughs, and they came up with an idea of a collaboration on a book, which was to be written as a hard-boiled detective story with Bill and Jack writing alternate chapters. Bill as Will Dennison and Jack as Mike Ryko. The book was credited to William Lee and John Kerouac. They began writing it in December, the majority of it in Bill's new apartment above Rorden's Cafe at Columbus Circle. Uh, they each would type out a part, and then like one would chap type out one chapter, the other one would type out another chapter. Uh, Bill liked the process, but he didn't like the end result. He he didn't like Jack's style of writing. And he, he actually even goes on to tell people that Jack's a shitty writer. I can see that. Um, they called the book, and the hippos were boiled in their tanks after a radio report of a circus <laughs> fire they heard while writing the book. They come up with some nice, I love some of the titles of these books. Not that I'd ever really read any of them, but I, the titles of the books. And hippos yeah, were boiled were, in their tanks is a great title for When you book. went through the list at the beginning of episode one, they, they were quite eccentric. and A lot of them come from his cut-up time, and we'll get into cut-ups Probably next episode, maybe this episode. I don't know. I have to relook through the notes. Um, but a lot of that comes from the cut-ups, and some of the sh some of the titles don't really make sense at all. 
they they don't. But I mean, just the. But that one came. That one came when uh, circus fire and the hippos were boiled in their tanks. So that's where they got the, the, the name. That's very creative. I like that. Uh-huh. I mean, I. I'm it's a hor- not... it's horrible. Yeah, but, but the na- it's 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 neat. As yeah. as a writer and a lover of books, a lover of literature, that's very creative. Mm-hmm. I I love that idea. Yeah. Uh, by March 1945, the book was finished, and Kerouac took it to his agents, uh, Ingersoll and Breenan, who sent it to Simon and Schuster for consideration. They were both hoping to for commercial success, but publishers were not overwhelmed. Kerouac made some changes in hopes of selling it somewhere else. Nonetheless, Bill had fun doing it, and it helped establish writing as his creative outlet. When Lucian heard what they were doing, he adamantly objected, which dampened their attempt to sell it, since it was all based on, you know, him murdering one of their friends. Uh, Years later, in discussion with Carr, James Garaholtz, on behalf of Burroughs' estate, agreed not to permit publication until after Carr's death. Um, James Garaholtz not going to play much of a apart until episode until the last episode or second fourth fifth episode but he ends up becoming a huge part of William S. Burroughs life later on I'm going to apologize because you guys didn't hear me shaking my head (laughs) sometimes when I'm talking with Kevin even on the phone he gets mad at me because I won't say anything but I'm listening and I'll just shake my head but when I'm listening to someone intently I don't speak and (laughs) I just did that, and I caught myself doing it. Uh-huh. I was like, "That's why he gets so mad at me." Because... I can't. Yeah, I can't count how many times we'll be on. I'll, I'll, we'll be having a conversation, and I'll talk for like three, four minutes straight, and then I'll stop talking, and then it's pure silence. I'm like, "Are you even fucking listening to me?" Yeah, I'm listening. Then say something for Christ's sake. So I'm, I, I was shaking my head and in agreement, and like, yeah, yeah, that's nice, and. Well, the last episode, you didn't say anything because you were just so dumbstruck about some of the shit that was going on. Yeah, my mouth was agape the entire episode, pretty much. <laughs> uh, there's a couple times I had to look at her and be like, are you going to say something or not? And she's just like, I, I, what? I couldn't say anything. I didn't know what Him to say. Hitler was right and all that shit. <laughs> I was, oh, oh my gosh, but continue. Okay. Uh, Bill was the type that didn't want to hear about, about how other people's lived. He wanted to live it himself. Just like when he went to Chicago, he didn't want to hear about criminals and gangsters. He wanted to live it. New York was no different. Bill's apartment was above uh, Rorgren's Cafe, just west of Broadway at Columbus Circle, a rundown neighborhood on the edge of Hell's Kitchen. His apartment was drafty, cold, and bug-infested. He had moved there specifically to study the inhabitants of 8th Avenue, the gamblers, the honky-tonk types who hung around nearby Madison Square Garden, and the old and the old men's bars, the hustler bars, the junkies, the tea heads, narcotic agents, and the agent provocateur bars between 44th and 42nd Street, and Times Square itself. Uh, I didn't get into too much detail because there's like three paragraphs long in that book about how this apartment looked. Um, the nastiest crack den you've ever seen Take it down by maybe three or four. Oh, it's I've, fucking I've, disgusting. It probably looked like uh, some of the meth houses in Pena. Possibly, it's fu- it was fucking the wallpaper peeling off the walls from the steam and the radiators and mm-hmm. mold growing on their mm-hmm. on their clothes. It was bad. Bill met Herbert Hunky at home. Of an overweight, flabby, middle-aged queen with tattooing on his forearms and back of his hands that was a failed vaudeville performer who now worked as an attendant at a Turkish bath named Bozo, 
while trying to sell a quantity of morphine surrettes and a broken down Tommy gun a friend of his had stolen from a Navy dockyard. <laughs> the shit. It's like, so, so just imagine this. What's the craziest shit you can make up in your own imagination? An overweight, flabby, middle-aged queen with tattooing on his forearms and back of his hands that was a failed vaudeville performer who now worked as a tenant at a Turkish bath named Bozo. <laughs> and then and then this guy actually fucking lived it. Yeah. it's Oh, he went there on purpose, and then later he gets an apartment next to him so he can go visit him. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Herbert Hunky was a low-life low druggie, a wannabe gangster that didn't like or trust Bill from the start. Thought Bill looked like a narc. The guy named a guy named Phil White, who was the sailor that I told you about last episode, uh, who uh, he lived with Bozo and Herb, bought some of the morphine off of Bill. A few nights later, Bill used one of the surrets. It was his first experience with junk morphine. Surrets are like toothpaste tubes, only with a needle in the end. Uh, you uh, pin has to be pushed down in the needle to pierce the seal and ready the surret for use. Bill was using junk, but not enough to have a habit. He was fascinated by the criminal circle he was now moving in and took to, spend, took to spending time at the Angler Bar where Herbert Hunky liked to hang out. The Times Square cops despised Herbert because he lacked even the questionable morality of a thief. He would steal from anyone, friend or stranger, no matter how sick or hungry or down on their luck. That is her meter. Her monitor telling her that it's... Uh, Poor cellular coverage. Yeah, well, we knew that was going to happen. The cops nicknamed him the Creep. And sometimes when his behavior was particularly despicable, they would ban him from the entire square. Times Square. You know how big that place is? They'd ban him from the whole fucking thing. Yeah, the Creep is not as creative as... Some of the other names. Well, the police came up with that. Yeah, that's what I... So, they called him the creep. But, you gotta think, back then, with all the fucking creeps that were out there, you're the one that's known as the creep? It's gotta be pretty fucking bad. You have to be a pretty big creep in order for the cops to know you as the creep when they have thousands of other people that they need to worry about. Yeah, yeah, true. But, still not creative. No, not creative. It should have been like Bozo the Creep. Well, no, it's not. he's not Bozo. Those are two different people. Oh. Herbert and Bozo and Paul White the Sailor are all three different people. Who was called the Creep then? Herbert. Oh, Herbert. Herbert was the Creep. Herbert the Creep. That would have been Herbert. Sounds like He's just creep. the Creep. At this time, Burroughs' interests were mostly in his criminal cohort, cohorts. He still met up with Kerouac and Ginsburg, and they would hit the West End and live it up. But Bill was, in sense, living two lives and purposely separated them by renting a small apartment a few doors from Bill and Phil and Bozo's apartment on Henry Street, where he could take drugs and hang out with the underworld types whom he didn't particularly want to mix with his West End bar friends. So, I mean, everybody's got that friend that they don't want anybody else to know about, I guess. Uh, I don't. If you don't have the friend you don't want anybody else to know about, you're that friend. <laughs> no. <laughs> like if uh, I had to think about it for a second. No, I'm fucking awesome. Everybody loves me. Uh, hey, all you book people. Do you love wrestling? Do you hate wrestling? Well, I got the podcast for you. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt is a podcast Stephanie and I do on all the things we love and hate about wrestling today. 
Get a viewpoint from people who are strictly fans and live outside the industry. So go to audioparfait.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. One night, Bill and Jack went to Phil's and met Vicki Russell, a former prostitute forced into the occupation after being kidnapped. Oh, Yeah. Sex worker. Yeah, she got out of it. She ended up stabbing the guy who kidnapped her. Ooh, go girl. But she stayed in the occupation anyway. Well, that was her choice. Well, she uh, she suggested that they go purchase some Benzedrine inhalers. Did you ever use Benzedrine inhalers? Uh, no, I think I've only used albuterol. I don't know if they still make them or not. Uh, and they get high off of them. Bill and Vicky bought a number of inhalers and went to an all-night coffee shop where Vicky showed them what to do. Inside the inhaler, there were six white strips of blotting paper impregnated with amphetamine. They were awful to taste, but the effect was just one of those. The effect of just one of those strips came on quickly and lasted for eight hours. An eight-hour trip. Yeah, from one of the strips. Remember that, and a, a quick eight-hour trip from just one of these strips, and there are six strips in each inhaler. Okay. Vicky expertly extracted the strips and gave three to Bill, telling him to roll them into a pill and wash them down with coffee. It was just another road down the junkie lifestyle that would lead to Bill's writing and further addiction. It's going to fuck with the schizophrenia. <laughs> jo- Joan Vollmer returned to New York with her daughter, Julie, early September 1944. Jack and Alan got into their heads that Burroughs should meet Joan. Jack and Alan did not know at the time that Bill was gay, so there was a degree of matchmaking going on as well as a genuine feeling that they would get on. He and Joan hit it off. Their humor clicked, and they clearly enjoyed each other's company. She reminded, reminded him of his mother in the sense that she could call BS on someone at first glance, just like his mom. They became good friends, and Bill, Bill often visited her. His relationship with Joan did not become physical until later. Yes, he's gay, but he does end up having a sexual relationship with her. So then he's bisexual. No, he just likes to get off. If there's penetration, then he's bisexual. No, he just likes to get off. There's a, I didn't cover it, but there's um, a brothel in St. Louis that he would go to to have sex with. Um, the women. He didn't want anybody to know he was gay, so he'd have sex with the women because he wanted to have sex, but he because he wanted that human connection. Uh, and he would go to one specific brothel, and he'd get one specific black lady every time. She said she had huge tits, and he would just, like, nestle himself up in them, and they'd have sex, and then afterwards he'd cuddle with her because he wanted to feel the human connection. Because he wanted somebody in his life so bad, but he he didn't know how to talk to get to men. He didn't know how to get a boyfriend, but so he would go sleep with a prostitute. Okay. So not not bisexual, but willing to have sex with pretty much anybody who will have sex with him. Okay. Okay. Uh, fuck! Now I lost my plot. Oh, there it is. Okay. Jack brought Vicky Russell around, and she quickly introduced Benzedrine to the rest of the group. Joan had a huge bed with an oriental rug draped across it, and soon Alan, Jack, Joan, often accompanied by Vicky, would spend, were spending evenings high on amphetamine, spread over the, sprawled over the bed as little Julie slept in the corner of the room. Joan was still in need of roommates, and so around Labor Day 1945, Bill moved in. 
uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, child neglect in the next couple stories. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, well, the drugs take over. And after that, the kids don't really matter. They really don't. Man, it's, it's sad. Um, especially what ends up happening to their son, who we'll get to later. But it's sad. It's no no children die in the making of this story. Just so you know, they grow up. It's just they grow up in a shitty life. So, take that for what you will. Joan was still married to Paul Adams, but had written saying she no longer wanted to be with him. He clearly still had feelings for her. Their relationship was finally terminated one night, September 1945, when Paul came striding down the hall of the 115th Street in his big army boots, fresh home from the front. He was appalled to find six people, all high on benzedrine, cross-legged and sprawled across the bed, surrounded by overflowing ashtrays, discussing skepticism and decadence. He stared at them in horror and exclaimed, quote, Is this what I fought for? Joan just looked at him and told him to come down off his character heights. He filed for divorce shortly after. Good for him. He should have taken the kid, though. Yeah. But it wasn't his kid. No. Well, he thought it was his because uh, if he would have found out she had cheated on him and had a baby with somebody else, then they would have cut off all of his military pay to her and she would have had to pay for everything herself. But since he thought the baby was his, she still got money from him. Uh. Yeah. You're going to see a lot of people using other people for money. It's a, it's a really skeevy group of people. Yeah. They're really just horrible people. And if it wasn't for his writings, I obviously wouldn't worry about him, but uh, he plays a major part in the mid 20th century. So kind of have to. This was the height of Burroughs' analysis with Dr. Wahlberg, and Bill was reading a great deal about hypnoanalysis and narcoanalysis and Freud. He attempted to put his ideas into practice by an analyzing Allen Ginsberg beginning in August 1945. In addition to his experiments and lay analysis, for many months, Bill attempted to hypnotize Ginsberg with no success. They conducted experiments in telepathy, marking crosses and circles and squares on sheets of paper in predetermined times. Ginsberg remembered that Quote, there were a whole year where we did that for fun. We would not see each other and match them every two days. So one would, they'd each have a sheet of paper and they'd make a grid on it and they'd put X's and crosses and O's and shit in them. And then they'd get together and they'd see if they matched up. And like half the time they matched up. So they thought it was some type of crazy psychic connection when honestly it's just statistics. Uh, this was something that Bill and Joan would do together for many years to come as they spent their life pretty much together. They would do this all the time. It was inevitable that the other residents of 115th Street would get to know Hunky. Burroughs took him around in October 1945, thinking that his stories might amuse them. They did, and Herbert made enormous efforts to ingratiate himself into their society, knowing that they were all from solid middle-class backgrounds like himself, and there was money there. And he'll go anywhere there's money. Of course. Yeah. Bill also brought brought around Phil the Sailor White, whom he was seeing on the regular basis to get morphine. The Sailor also had a good line in stories. Shortly before Burroughs met him, Herbert and Phil White were on board a ship. Both of them had merchant marine papers. This is how this is how horrible these two are. They stole all the morphine surrettes from the medical supply supplies in the lifeboats and shot them up. Had the ship been torpedoed and injured? 
had the ship been torpedoed and all injured men taken to the lifeboats, there would have been no morphine to ease their pain. Jesus. Wow. Ever since he first met Phil White, Bill had been slowly developing a habit until he was now shooting every day. Phil White and his girlfriend, Kay, moved into the apartment in the same building, and every morning after breakfast, they would meet to plan how to get that day's supply of junk. Bill, now short of money from his habit, but still looking respectable, he always wore uh, a suit and tie. Always had on a suit and tie, no matter what. Began touring doctor, began touring doctors recommended by Phil as being likely to write a script. So now they're counting doctors into uh, giving them morphine instead of just buying it themselves oh. or stealing it. Joan and Bill spent hours in Joan's room. Bill, uh, because Bill was so involved with it, Joan tried morphine. She didn't shoot it. She hated it. She said it was just awful. She hated the sensation and couldn't understand how anyone could take it. I'm kind of the same way with uh, with weed. Anytime I'd ever had, I didn't know, smoke it, but anytime I ever got like a contact high or even with alcohol, I do not like the way it makes me feel. I do not know how anybody can like the way it makes them feel. So her and I are kind of in the same boat. It depends on the alcohol and it depends on I've never what had, type of weed. I've never had any alcohol that, that I liked the way it made me feel. And uh, I've I've gotten second, um, second hand high, second you know contact highs before concerts and shit like that. And anytime I start to feel a little loopy, I fucking hate it. I don't like taking cough medicine. I know people drink cough medicine just because it, you know makes them feel a certain way. I hate it. So her and I are kind of in the same boat with that. However, um, oh, but she takes amphetamines. Yeah, she had a complete intolerance for opiate. For opiates. However, as Burroughs drifted deeper into addiction, so Joan took more and more Benzedrine. Uh, by Christmas 1945, she was using an entire tube a day. Remember, one strip gives you an eight-hour high, and there's six strips, and she was going through an entire inhaler a day. Bill used to line up the empties and shoot them with an air pistol for fun. Bill loves guns. Uh, meanwhile, Bill's addiction had reached the stages where his monthly allowance did not cover the cost of his drugs, so he couldn't buy all his drugs with the fucking $150, $200 they were sending him every month. So he concentrated instead on getting scripts from doctors, and when that got difficult, he began forging them. Edie's grandmother had put some someone named Morris Martin through medical school, and when he died, he left her some property in Brooklyn. She never threw anything away that might be useful, such as the dead doctor's prescription pads. They used the prescription pads to get drunk. Then Bill, misspelled the lauded, using two L's, attracted the attention of a pharmacist. I wouldn't know how to spell the lauded either. So I've taken the lauded. I know you have, but I wouldn't know how to spell it. As Edie put it, quote, some druggist checked and found out that the croaker had croaked. They found out that the doctor was dead, and so somebody was forging his scripts. The inspectors examined the scripts and found that they were different handwriting. Bill was not surprised when two detectives arrived at 115th Street, as Herbert had already been arrested. Bill was charged with violation of Public Health Law 334, giving the wrong name on a prescription. He was taken to the tombs, fingerprinted, his mugshot was taken. Bail was set at $1,000. Joan arrived, accompanied by Dr. Wahlberg, Bill's psychiatrist, she didn't have any money, but as a physician, Dr. Wahlberg could sign a bond. Bill's parents were notified, and his father flew to New York. Again. And bailed him out. Again. His parents were very upset, 
They had not seen Bill for six months and had no idea that he was using drugs. Moat didn't lecture him. He just said, that's a terrible habit. He got Bill a lawyer who advised them to get a doctor to say he was under treatment for his affliction, as he put it. Bill was busted in April 1946, but his case would not reach magistrate court for two months. Quite a bit happens in that two months. He still needed money for drugs. He began working as the sailor's accomplice as a lush worker. He acted as a a shill and stand-up man for Phil, respectable in his suit and tie, holding his New York Times open spread wide while Phil reached behind Bill, his fingers feeling for the inside breast pocket of the passenger sitting next to Bill. So they became pickpockets, looking for the man's wallet or poke, as Phil called it. The partnership did not last long. Bill did not have the stomach for the violence involved. He wanted to be a gangster his whole life, and he can't handle the violence of being a pickpocket. I mean, if you're if you're good at it, then there's no violence. But take a wild guess on whether or not they were good at it. Well, since there's violence, I highly doubt they were any good at it. My, I would say that Burroughs is just a fucking poser. Honestly, he wants to do this stuff, but he he just can't. No, he's not good at anything but writing. No, he's he's extremely good at that. He, he does get really good at that. Well, except for spelling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one time, uh, they were pickpocketing a guy who was passed out on a park bench. Uh, he was drunk. He woke up and grabbed them. Quote, okay, you guys, you've been in my pockets. We're going downtown. Burroughs remembered, quote, the sailor hit him, hit him, and he fell down, but he was still hanging on to the sailor. And the sailor said, get this mooch off of me. So I hit him once in the jaw and kicked him once in the ribs. Well, the ribs smashed. I had to get out of that, man. I had to get out of that situation. The next day, Bill told Phil he was retiring as a lush worker. Phil said, I don't blame you. Bill's next move was to go into pushing heroin with Bill Garver, known as Bill Gaines in Junkie, another one of Herbert's criminal friends. Garver had an Italian connection on the Lower East Side who sold them a quarter ounce for $90. They cut one-third with milk sugar and put one grain ca- and put in one grain cap that they sold for $2 each retail. They were offering the best deal on the streets as the caps were about 16% pure. They got about 80 caps out of a quarter ounce because their connection constantly gave them short count. Burroughs now spent hours of his time in the cafeteria and bars waiting, watching, until his customers found him. This guy, uh, Bill Garber, is a piece of shit. I don't have a lot of him uh, on him in here, uh, just because there was just so much, but he used to work at a, I want to say a, um, a medical facility, and he would take the people's medicine and cut it with uh, milk sugar and steal the rest of it. And he loved how they would be in pain from it. Oh yeah, he geez. yeah he was uh, pretty. He was, I mean, he was a psychopath pretty much. He he as far as I know, he never murdered anybody, but he used to steal people's medicine and then he'd get a kick, or he'd uh, give people medicine, uh, give them drugs, and then watch them not die from OD, but get super sick from it, and he'd just sit back and laugh. He so thought he it was, was hilarious. He was a sociopath. Uh, he's probably closer to a psychopath, but yeah, he was. Yeah, he's he's a piece of shit. Oh, and I bet he becomes best friends with 
We don't cover Burrows. we don't cover too much more about him. He's just kind of a he's a friend of Herbert's, and he starts working with them, but it, it doesn't last super long. Uh, Bills came. Bills. Bills. Bills came. Bills case came before the magistrate early June 1946. Quote. I'm going to sentence you to go back to St. Louis for the summer, which is terrible. Uh, to make a disposition of the case, he said Bill was on general probation, but there was no suspended sentence. Bill walked free. He went straight to the U.S. narcotic farm in Lexington, Kentucky to take the cure. They gave him a reduction, cor- a reduction cure using dolophene, a brand of methadone. But he only stayed 10 days. So he was not completely cured. So if you're not completely cured from a drug addiction, you're not cured at all. There's no half-ass cure. You're either cured or you're not cured, right? There is no real cure from it because you're always going to be addicted to it. Yeah, but if they don't get you completely off of it to where you don't use it anymore and you only use it every once in a while, then that's not going to matter because you're just going to go back to using it the same way you were using it before, especially hard drugs like this. Yeah. Yeah. After Bill left for St. Louis, things got worse and worse. One time, Phil got very high on goofballs, a uh, pentobarbital sold under the brand name of Nembutal. Again, a lot of fucking medicine names. He took Bill's 32 and set out and uh, set out to hold up a store. Phil burst into a furious showroom, pulled his gun, demanded money. Phil shot the furrier in the stomach, killing him in cold blood. Years later, in May 1951, Phil was picked up on a junk offense, and in order to reduce his sentence, he squealed on a pusher. While in the tombs, awaiting transfer to another jail, he hanged himself. He knew what happened to informants. Shortly after, Joan cracked up completely and was picked up by picked up wandering around Times Square. She was admitted to Bellevue Hospital, suffering from acute amphetamine psychosis. <laughs> The, Acute my ass. The first female case on record, and they kept her there for 10 days. Her father came down to Londonville, Lodenville, to get Julie. So she, the, the daughter's finally out of it for now. Her daughter, Julie, mm-hmm. she's, fi- she's finally going to get taken care of a little bit for now. For, yeah, 10 days. Well, no, he came down and got her and kept her for a while. Oh, okay. Bill's parents were very very concerned. His uncle Horace had been a morphine addict and had ended up slitting his wrist. They complained, conjoled, but could never understand why Bill was doing it. Burroughs said that they were compassionate and understanding. A mixed reaction. Upon arrival in St. Louis, he's delighted to find his old school and Harvard friend, Kells Elvin, there. Kells was back from serving as a Marine in the Pacific Theater, where he had lost his hearing in one ear thanks to a Japanese shell. He told Bill his war stories which were filed in Burroughs' writing memory. Kell's influence helped Bill continue his cure. He wrote Joan, quote, Off the habit, Kells wanted to associate with, a dy- with dynamic people, and I am forced to admit that junk seriously hampers, hampers my dynamicism. Kells' father owned property in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas and had moved there in 1936. Kells followed him and brought, bought 10 acres of citrus groves and 100 acres of cotton allotments for $5,000 near his father's land. He suggested that Bill join him, and they would both make some money as cotton farmers. Bill's parents, who knew both Kells and his parents, were delighted with the idea and advanced him enough money to buy 50 acres of the finest land in the valley, complete with cotton alignments. So they're not just saying, here, we're just going to pay for your shit. They're giving him money to hopefully invest and start a business so he can take care of himself. What parents do. 
They should have thought who they were talking to. Bill bought 50 acres at Monte Cristo and Morningside Drive in Edinburgh. Neither Burroughs nor Elvins knew anything about farming. They had a farm manager to organize everything. He hired the farmhands, bought the plants, organized the trucking, and received a monthly wage and percentage of the profits. During the day, Bill and Kells drove around inspecting the land to just past time until 5 p.m. when they started drinking, using Benadryl, smoking pot, and sometimes eating shrooms. Bill absorbed all the stories about the local wheel dealers, con men, and wildcat oiled men, such as David Dryhole Bird, who emerged as Dryhole Dutton in Queer. Bill stored all these characters and stories away for future use. Again, pulling from real life so he could write about. But the real action was across the border in Reynosa's zone Rosa, about eight miles away where Kells, Obi, Kells' girlfriend, and Burroughs often went to drink. It was, usual, it was usual to bar hop, but the most favorite spot was Joe's place. It was in Re- Reynosa that Bill found his quote-unquote boys. It would have caused too many problems to have approached any of the field hands, and none of Kells' friends were anything but straight. In Reynosa, however, Bill was known as Willie El Puto, or Willie the Queer. Puto means whore. Uh, not the way you use it. <laughs> Early October 1946, Bill had heard the disturbing news from Alan that Joan had been admitted to Bellevue, suffering from amphetamine psychosis. He immediately sent her some money and told her that he would be in New York later in the month. He was just off to St. Louis to formally divorce Isla Hertzfeld Clapper and to get money from his parents for more land. At Bellevue, they cured Joan of her benzedrine psychosis within a few days. She was met by Burroughs, who, after spending a few days in New York, took her to the farm on October 31st to begin a new life in Texas. Shortly after arriving with Joan, Bill set off to buy land to grow pot. The area they were in was too flat and filled with too many people. So he's going to have his regular land, and then he's going to have his pot land. Burroughs bought 99 acres outside Huntsville in Walker County, East Texas, in November 1946 for $2,000. 99 acres for fucking marijuana. For $2,000. Yeah. That's, wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, They instigated repairs, and there was a house there on the uh, the land, too. So they came with a house. Uh, they instigated repairs on the house that was on the land. Joe Joan went to Loudonville to collect Julie and to take her to the new home on January 2nd. So Julie wasn't taken care of very well for too long. The house needed work and they needed help. Before they even moved into the inn, they decided to invite Herbert to come help fix the place up. And he agreed. It had been Joan's suggestion that Herbert should come to the farm. She wanted the Benzedrine Company. Joan was still seriously strung out, and if anything, her benzedrine habit had increased. So they thought they cured her, but the second she got out, she got right back on it. Joan's two-inhaler-a-day benzedrine habit meant that they soon cleaned out the nearby pharmacies, and it was Herbert's job to make runs to Houston every two or three weeks, where he had found a drugstore that would supply inhalers by the gross and paragoric by the half-gallon. It's another type of opium. After Joan left Bellevue, she and Bill had stayed in a cheap hotel near Times Square, which was where 
Billy Jr. was conceived. She initially wanted an abortion, but Bill was against it. He also, he was against it, but he also never stopped her drug or alcohol abuse. It was so against his principles to interfere in anyone else's life that he would have regarded it as impertinence to criticize her behavior. He did not believe in abortion, but he felt so adamantly that you should not be critical of other people's lives that he didn't stop her from taking drugs and drinking while she was pregnant with his kid. Yeah, that's that's uh, stupid. As a consequence, Billy Jr. was born an amphetamine addict and went straight into withdrawal, crying all the time and being very distressed. Joan was unable to breastfeed him because of her addiction. July 21st, 1947, Billy was born. Alan arranged to visit Bill and Joan that summer, bringing bringing with him Neil Cassidy, with whom he had been having an unsatisfactory love affair in Denver. Alan's physical demands of Neil were just as off-putting as his emotional ones. Neil told Korowak, quote, I got so I couldn't stand Alan to even touch me. Neil insisted that they split up. Alan decided to ship off from Houston to make some money, whereas Neil would stay on and help with the marijuana harvest and then drive back, drive Bill back to New York. Bill had decided that the family would be better off spending the winter in the city. Back in New York, Bill met up with Garver, the uh, heroin dealer, mm-hmm. and almost immediately got a new habit. He spent so much of his time in the city hanging out with Garver and scoring heroin, usually with Joan in tow. One night, visiting an Italian friend of of Herbert's in Yonkers, he overdosed and passed out. So he's on heroin now. It went from just morphine, so now he's using heroin. Joan managed to revive him, gave him coffee, walked him around the room until he was fully recovered. In the spring of 1948, disappointed at his own lack of willpower to get and getting hooked again, Bill tried to kick using a reduction cure while driving back from Texas to New York from New York with Joan, but it naturally didn't work. So the reduction cure would be he would use heroin, and then the next time he'd do it, he'd fill it with distilled water, and he'd do he'd cut it with distilled water, so he'd be doing less and less heroin until at the end of it, you're doing just distilled water. But every time he'd do that, he'd have some excuse of why he couldn't use the distilled water this time. There was something going on, so he had to use straight heroin. So he ran out of heroin by the time they got to about Cincinnati. And I'm guessing they were driving with the kids in the car while he was doing heroin and driving. Bingo. And getting, and getting drunk, too. I mean, the kids live, so. Yeah, well. He and Joan continued to St. Louis, where Laura Burroughs tried to get him to go to a private nut house. Instead, he opted to take the straightforward withdrawal cure again at the U.S. Narcotics Farm in Kentucky. After that, he managed to stay off junk for about four months. So he did get clean for a little bit. On April 27, 1948, Bill, Joan, and little Billy were driving the 400 miles south from New Waverly to Far, where Bill was intent on buying more land. Bill was driving and really drunk. Staying off drunk for so many months clearly had a potent effect on his libido because at one point, between San Antonio and Corpus Christi, they stopped the car. He and Joan got out to fuck by the side of the road, leaving little Billy in the car. Someone drove past and reported them to the police. And the next thing Burroughs knew, Sheriff Val Ennis and his deputy were on the scene. They put Bill in a prowl car and took him to the Beeville Jail. Bill quickly telegrammed his parents, 
For God's sake, send the money or I'll be here in Beville Jail. He was anxious to get out of there because he had fallen into the hands of one of the most vicious, brutal lawmen in the whole of Texas. I, I won't get into Ennis too much. He was a racist, corrupt murderer with the badge, and the locals were terrified of him. I'll tell you a real quick story just, just to push it off. And I, I told you this before. Um, so he, he goes to a house to collect some children for a custody dispute. And they said, no, we're not giving you the kids. So he goes back in the town, deputizes a few of the neighbors, brings them back, and sets up a machine gun outside the house, pointed directly at the house, just a few yards off the property. Um, he calls for them to come out. The grandfather of the house comes out, and he blows him back into the house with all the fucking bullets he throws through him. Two of the uncles come running around the side of the house. He blows both of them away. Two of the kids come running side, around the side of the house. He shoots at the kids, but luckily misses them. Everybody runs back inside the house that can. He grabs the deputies. They all run inside, see a bunch of kids and unarmed men around the grandfather as the grandfather's dying. And instead of helping or just taking the kids and leaving, him and the newly deputized neighbors beat each one of them to within an inch of their life before he takes the kids. This guy is a fiend. He is horrible. So, with that said, prompted by his brush with Ennis and Texas justice, Bill decided that he had enough of Texas and decided to move them to New Orleans. He sold the farm June 23, 1948, for $2,000, exactly the amount he had paid for it. But by then, the Burroughs family was living in a rooming house in New Orleans, and on August 2nd, Bill bought a house in Algiers, Louisiana, just across the Mississippi from the French Quarter. The French Quarter is probably the worst possible place for an addict to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Burroughs took his responsibility as a father seriously. He loved his son. He adored his son. And his first priority had been to a place to, his first priority had been to find a place to, quote, stash these brats. He adored his son. And... Oh, we call the kids worse thing than brats. Yeah. Shitheads, fuckers, all that stuff. I mean, they, they, we call them a lot worse thing than just brats. Inevitably, soon after he moved to New Orleans, Burroughs returned to his old ways. He quickly became re-addicted and began picking up boys. Junk was just too easy to get, and the French Quarter had, quote, several queer bars so full every night the fags spilled out onto the sidewalk. He was gay himself. How can... <sighs> In a bar off Exchange Place, he ran into a junkie named Joe Ricks, called Pat in Junkie, who offered to score him if Bill would buy him a cap. If Junkie is accurate, Bill appears to have had an apartment in town as well as the house for his wife and kids. They are common law married, not married married. He called, he, he called her his wife for a long time, ever since they really got together. It wasn't until later where they were technically common law married, so they never actually got married, but he considered her his wife. He and Joe went to his place, and despite Joe's warning that it was strong stuff, Bill measured himself two-thirds of a cap. He overdosed and passed out. When he came to, he was $10 lighter. When Bill ran into Joe in the next few days, Ricks had said that he thought Bill was dying and wouldn't need the money anymore. A week later, Bill was hooked. 
He fell into the boring, junky routine, shutting, shooting up three times a day and pottering around the house, fixing things up, hardly ever going out except to score. He and Joe began pushing a small, pushing in a small way, just enough to pay for their habit. On April 5th, 1949, Bill was busted on drugs and a gun. There had been a new law passed recently in New Orleans that had made it effect, made it, it made it illegal to be a junkie. Bill had a needle welt on his arm. Quote, all right, let me see your arms. Burroughs remembered their command 40 years later in a Thanksgiving prayer. It's another one of his little stories. Bill's father put up the bail of $1,500 and put Bill in the DePaul Sanitarium to get cured. He was in his third day of withdrawal and was not in good shape. More importantly, they arranged with the DA that Bill could leave the state for an indefinite period before the case came to trial on October 27th. Bill, in hospital, was almost clear within eight days. So they they worked on getting him uh, off the stuff. You think it's going to stick? No. Ah. Bill and Joan, for Bill and Joan, the biggest problem was where to go next. Second felony in New Orleans would draw seven years in the state penitentiary, and he could be pulled over at any time under the new drug laws. In Texas, a second conviction for drunken driving would be almost as bad. Bill's family was prepared to use their financial clout to prevent him from ever returning to New York. Joan told Allen, quote, It makes things rather difficult for Bill. As for me, I don't care where I live, as long as it's with him. Bill decided that he would first return to Texas to oversee the sale of his farming interest, and then on to Mexico, because that's where you go when you're wanted by the law in the U.S. Yeah. You go down to Mexico. Bill, Joan, and the children moved to the, moved to the valley in April ni- 1949 to sell Bill's land holdings there. In May, he sold his original 50 acres to Kells, but the family stayed, ar- stayed on and far until October, waiting to see how Bill's trial was shaping up. He felt that the valley was plagued by D.O.R., William Reich's deadly organ radiation. Now let's get into this shit for a second. It's a negative, debilitating energy that brought on depression and lack of vitality. Reich argues that cancer is caused by an inability to discharge sexual energy. The fix was called organ energy, natural energy, the life force, cosmic energy. Burroughs took exception to the amount of paperwork attached to renting an organ accumulator. So in June, he built his own in the yard behind Kell's house. The the, The principle was very simple. Organs are absorbed and retained by organic matter, but pass freely through metal. A metal box with organic material on the outside will have a higher concentration of organs inside than outside the box. The layer of organic material will retard the escape of organs from the box. Bill ordered sheet metal, woods, and a roll of rock wool. He felt it did him good. Quote, My skin prickled and I experienced an aphrodisiac effect similar to good strong weed. No doubt about it. Organs are as definite a force as electricity. After using the accumulator for several days, my energy came back to normal. Kells and Bill's accumulator was a popular new toy. So he would sit in this fucking metal box because he felt like it absorbed good energy. Okay, maybe it was just him getting the vitamin D back into his system being out in the sunlight. This thing, I'm not I'm not going to bring it up every time it's brought up in the book, but pretty much anywhere he lives, he has a fucking organ uh, accumulator with him. 
Oh my gosh. That he sits. He builds them out of like refrigerator, uh, old refrigerators and shit. I mean, any everywhere he goes, he has one, and he he swears by them. He thinks they can fix pretty much fucking anything. Dude is so weird. Bill always had a gun on him and continued to practice by shooting Jones' empty inhaler cases off a wall. Ted Merrick, a friend of theirs from New York days, told that uh, one of their games consisted of Bill getting him or Kells to throw oranges or grapefruits into the air. Bill would aim and hit them in the air almost every time. Merrick was a qualified marksman from his time in the U.S. Army Army Cavalry and said that Bill was an expert expert shot. I mean, he's been shooting guns since he was eight years old, so he's, he's good with a gun. Yeah. Merrick also told that Bill would sometimes put a grapefruit or other fruit on Jones' head and shoot it off in a reenactment of William Tell. Don't. That's it's not a good thing. No, because he he was probably drunk or high on something at the time, and mm. with her being drunk and high at the time, she couldn't stand still. And uh, he, let, let's just—he never misses the fruit. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll leave you with that for a second. In September, Bill made a trip to Mexico City with Kells and rented an apartment at Rio Lerma Twenty Six, preparatory to moving there with his family. His lawyer had warned him that there was every indication of an unfavorable outcome in his drug case and that he had decided to skip the country. By October 1949, they were living there. With the exception of a relatively short relatively short visits, Burroughs would live outside the U.S. from then until 1974. Burroughs rented a place for his family close to the Angel of Independence Monument. He still retained his bachelor apartment in near, on nearby Rio Lerma. Joan told Alan, quote, the boys are lovely, easy, and cheap, three three pesos or 40 cents down here, but my patience is infinite. Clearly, Burroughs was making no effort in his to hide his boys from her. Shortly after arriving in Mexico City, Burroughs began to frequent a particular queer bar named the Laterna Verde, or the Green Lantern. Not far, not the comic book character. Yeah. Not far from Mexico City College. It was here where he met Angelo, his long-term Mexican boy, but in the meantime had no particular favorite. Burroughs did not bring them to the house, to the family home, but initially retained his small apartment at Rio Lerma and later used hotels. Hey guys, have you been trying to grow out that beard? I know it took me a while to grow mine. Let me tell you about the people over at thebeardstruggle.com. They have the ultimate collection of beard growth and care products for guys who are just starting their beard journey and only have a little bit of stubble, all the way to men with glorious chin locks all the way down to their belly buttons. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 365-day money-back guarantee. And now, if you use my coupon code KevinY15 at checkout, you'll save an additional 15% off your order. So go to thebeardstruggle.com or use the link in our show notes and get everything you need to keep that face fur healthy. And don't forget the code. Kevin Y15. That's K E V I N Y 15 for 15% off today. Go. Now. Odin demands it. Whether Joan was allowed or insisted upon the same sexual freedoms, we do not know. Bill had his boys and at least initially thought he was living in a free and easy society where everyone minded their own business. They settled into an approximation of normal family life. Burroughs was still under indictment in New Orleans for possession of narcotics and had been jumping bail. His first move was to find a lawyer to block any possibility of being extradited. He was using a payphone at Reforma Hotel, 
asking someone at the American embassy if they could recommend an English-speaking lawyer when he was overheard by a flashy-dressed, husky Italian-American with a big diamond ring on his finger, a stereotype, stereotype mafioso named Tony, who said, Pardon me. Couldn't help but overhear what you said. The man you seek is Barnaby Giraldo. Then he asked Bill, What's your trouble, embezzlement? Bill told him it was narcotics. He said, Oh, well, he's your man. Barnaby Gerardo was in the essence of machismo, and he was reputed to have married 14 times, twice to one woman. He liked cocaine, alcohol, and cantinas. He was a formidable lawyer who would do anything to win a case, buy off judges, alter documents, challenge his opponents to a duel. On one memorable occasion, he asked the judge to show him the proof against his client. The judge passed him a bounce check, and Barnaby... Popped it in his mouth and ate it. His client got off for lack of evidence. <laughs> wow. That's he, incredible. He was perfect material for Burroughs, who used him as a character in a number of books. It was Gerardo's office that Burroughs met David Ter- Tesorero, Tesorero, old Ike in Junkie, and asked him to join him for supper. Tesorero flipped back his coat lapel, and showed Bill the spike stuck on the underside. He told Bill, quote, I've been, a junk, I've been on junk for 28 years. You want to score? He wrote to Alan, quote, I've been off junk for three months at this time. It took me just three days to get back on. Joan was horrified. It may have been the deal where she would get off Benzedrine in Mexico and Burroughs would get off junk. She had gone through a painful withdrawal, and now he was using again. Bill decided to accompany Dave on his annual visit to Our Lady of Chalma, the saint of thieves and drug addicts. It took Bill and Dave two Bill and Dave two years, two days to get there, partly on foot. Bill enjoyed himself immensely. It appears that this last addiction was the tipping point for Joan. She'd had enough. And she actually goes and files for divorce from their common law marriage. Good for her. That August, Lucian Carr and his girlfriend, Liz Lerman, came for a brief visit. While they were there, Lucian witnessed Bill and Joan playing their telepathy game. They would sit on opposite corners of the room. Each would take a pencil and draw a square divided into nine equal sides and on a piece of paper. And each of the squares, they would draw nine images to be compared at the end. According to Lucian, the results were astonishing, with more than half of the images being the same. Not that astonishing, but Okay. Lucian thought that there existed a very special and profound level of communication between them caused by the power that Joan had over Bill. Joan was the sender. Bill was the receiver. She was the pitcher. He was the catcher. <laughs> she was the top. He was the bottom. Lucian loved to hear Bill's recounts and experiences with Herbert and Phil White and suggested that the stories would make a very commercial book. They, dis- they discussed the idea as soon as Lucian and Liz left. Bill set to work. Bill employed a young woman named Alice Hartman to type his manuscript. Bill worked diligently so that by January 1st, 1951, he was able to tell Allen Ginsburg that he had sent the complete manuscript to Lucian and asked him to try and sell it to a New York publisher for a $1,000 advance. He had been writing junk, the book as it was then called, largely for money because he, had, because he had a family to take care of, but he also had to pay for his junk and cocaine, which he was now on. Joan filed for divorce. She had had enough. They own joint property and technically man and wife through common law marriage. Um, 
He started writing junk, which will become junky with an IE, which will later become junky with a Y. He had sold the land in Texas, but was unable to move on further south to buy land because the buyer was unable to pay him all at once. He wanted to move further south, closer to Panama, and start a and open his own bar or farm. Um, it wasn't working out too well for him. He told Allen that he was not intended to leave Mexico until he had enough capital to buy a ranch and until he had kicked his habit. Perhaps in an effort to reconcile his relationship with Joan and hold together his family, Burroughs made a superhuman effort to get off junk in the new year. He used the reduction method and managed to kick junk until j- kick junk in two months. By the end of February 1951, he was clean. He was, of course, still smoking smoking opium twice a week. But in Burroughs' view, quote, you could hit the pipe that often with no risk of habit. Right. <laughs> Joan, who had seen it all before, appears not to have been particularly sympathetic. And although Joan had abandoned her divorce petition, she clearly no longer had the worship attitude towards Burroughs that she had began with. Joan was 26, a bout of untreated polio when Algiers had left her limping and using a cane, and she was an alcoholic. She did her best with the children, and she had decided to give the relationship another chance, though, though Burroughs, as a permanent drunk, was almost as bad as Burroughs the Junkie. Bill's favorite bar at the time was The Bounty, known as Ships Ahoy in Junkie and in Queer, which is just five blocks from his appointment. When I read Ships Ahoy, all I could think of was the ice cream place from Stranger Things. Yeah. <laughs> this is Imagine Burroughs in one of those fucking sailor outfits. Kind of gives me the shivers. <laughs> That's great, though. That's that's great imagery. Bill's convictions that Mexican believed in minding their own business was overturned when Bill and Joan's neighbors complained to the police about Bill's drug taking, their late night drinking and loud parties. He looked for elsewhere to live. John Healy suggested that they speak to Juanita Penzaloza Gonzalez. Burroughs called her Jerry in queer. Juanita offered Burroughs a place. In June 1951, they moved in. It was in a little courtyard. Julie and, Bill, Julie and Billy spent the day playing with the local children, all running barefoot around the flat roof, which was fenced in by wire cage. Donna Maria Sotelo, who lived in the top floor, said, quote, They passed the whole day sleeping, and all night they drank. They slept all day. The children spent the whole day playing on the rooftop terrace, but they didn't ever go downstairs. They ran around in little pajamas, around the roof, up and down the stairs. Who gives them breakfast? Who gives them anything? She asked. And for the most part, they ate up here because those others were hung over from their from their sprees that they did every night. And the children more more or less lived up there. Joan paid the other woman in the building to do her laundry. She never did her own laundry. And it is assumed she must have paid her neighbors for Billy and Julie's food. So they were just drunk, passed out all day while the kids ran around and the neighbors had to take care of them, pretty much. Yeah. I mean... At least they were coherent enough to ask others to keep well, I think an eye the, on I think the neighbors would have taken care of the kids whether they had asked them or not just because the two very young children running around with no supervision, I would imagine they probably got taken care of anyway. But as far as we know, Joan had paid the neighbors to uh, do laundry and, and feed them too. Burroughs' money from the tax land sale came through in June 1951, finally giving him the cash he needed to buy a farm. Think he bought that farm? No. His first move was not to explore agricultural possibilities of Panama, but to go in search of yahe, a hallucinogenic vine used by the local Indians. With his new paramour, 
Lewis Marker, called Eugene Allerton in Queer. Throughout his life, his modus operandi when receiving cash injections was to go on a trip with the boy. This is uh, Marker. 21 when he met Burroughs, who was then 37. Marker was not homosexual, so Burroughs had to seduce him with amusing stories, the promise of adventure and distractions and financial gain. With his Texas land sale money, at the end of June or early July, Burroughs was able to invite Marker to accompany him on a trip to Ecuador in search of Yahe, a new interest stemming from his experience in telepathy. Yahe was supposed to increase telepathic sensibility or sensitivity. Burroughs was confident that he would find a scientist in Ecuador who could point him in the right direction. So pretty much going down there without a fucking plan. No plan, no ideas, and just hearsay. <laughs> Marker had never been enthusiastic about the sexual aspect of a relationship, but he enjoyed the company of older men. He found Bill's exaggerated humor funny. They had made they had made an agreement that Bill would pay all expenses in return for sex twice a week, no more. All along, Burroughs knew the, re- the relationship was doomed. This was a proper jungle expedition. They go all into where they went, and I... I had it on here and I had to take it out because it was too fucking long. But, I mean, when you think jungle expedition, uh, walking through the forest, chopping down vines with the fucking machete and all that, that was what it was. It was a real jungle thing, coming across tribes and tents and trying to find somebody who could give him drugs. Um, It was, yeah, it took about two months. They'd been away for two months. Uh, they returned quickly to Mexico City, arriving the beginning of September 1951. Burroughs returned to Mexico City, deeply depressed at the failure of his attempt at Marker's love. He kept trying to get him to reciprocate his emotions, and he would not do it. He didn't even want to have sex with him. He was just kind of, he paid, you know, he, it was a deal, but a lot of the times he would turn him down. They all met at John Healy's for a small party. Burroughs had arrived at Healy's about 20 minutes after Joan. He had with him a checkmade star 38 autom- 380 automatic in his holster in a small overnight bag, a gun. It was a cheap gun, and he knew that it fired low. Marker and Eddie Woods were there. Although Burroughs was not addicted at the time, the conversation appears to have turned to the subject of how to get through a cure when there are so many ways of getting junk to threaten the addict's resolve. One idea Burroughs discussed was to retreat to an island that was reachable only by summer tides and that there, there would be no, no way to leave until the water was, again, was once again high enough, by which time he would be cured. There were apparently such places in the Amazon Bill said that they would survive by eating wild hogs. Joan dismissed the idea, saying, quote, We'd starve to death because you wouldn't be able to shoot. You'd be so shaky if you tried to come off it. You'll shake. You won't be able to shoot anything. Nonsense, Burroughs said, provoked by Joan's remarks. He said he didn't get the shakes, and he was still a good shot. It was then that he said, quote, Put that glass on your head, Joni. Let me show the boys what a great shot old Bill is. I don't like where this is going. <clears throat> the Red Cross received a phone call about 7.30 p.m. The emergency personnel found Joan slumped in an easy chair with a wound in her forehead flowing with blood. She was unconscious but still breathing. It is unclear how long Joan survived at the Red Cross Hospital. Some reports say an hour, others say just a few minutes. 
In addition to the ambulance, the police arrived accompanied by a number of reporters whom they had presumably tipped off. Um, there's a whole long story about how it exactly happens. I didn't write it down because it was too fucking long. But um, he goes to shoot. It shoots low. Some of the people thought maybe we should stop him, but they didn't because they thought he was joking. He shoots. Uh, she falls down. He jumps on top of her, tries to wake her up, but she won't wake up. They, they pick her up, put her in a chair, uh, hoping that they could get her get her to wake up. She's got a fucking bullet hole in her head. Uh, it said he never missed the fruit, but he, he missed the glass. Oh, my God. Like, oh. I mean... Just as Burroughs finished giving his account of what had happened to the police, Gerardo, his lawyer, arrived and told Burroughs in front of all the reporters that he would not be saying that before the authorities, only that the pistol had fired accidentally, and if he didn't, he would surely go to jail. Quote, don't say anything, Bill. This is a shooting accident. It wasn't an accident. No. I mean, he didn't mean to shoot her in the head, but it'll come out later that he, he blames... What do you think he blames? The gun? The ugly fucking spirit. Oh, yeah. That's so that's why, that's why I shot her in the head. It was the ugly spirit that did it. It oh, wasn't me. It was the ugly spirit. The police then arrested Burroughs for murder, and he was taken to the 8th Delegation Police Headquarters, where he was questioned by an investigative agent. Later that night, with the aid of Gerardo, Burroughs worked on a written statement claiming that the gun accidentally went off when he was showing his friends how the trigger system worked. So, you know, lying. On September 8th, Burroughs was questioned in his first formal hearing. He testified from behind a wire cage. Gerardo retained his release and walked, fr and he walked free on sept September 21st. Burroughs had put up the bond of $2,312. Burroughs was eventually sentenced in, abs in absentina to two years in jail, suspended. He was ordered to report each Monday before 8 a.m. to the Lucumberry Prison until his case was settled. He only spent about two weeks in prison. He was arranged that it was arranged that Mort would take the children to St. Louis, where Bill's parents had offered to raise them both. But at the end, the Volmers decided to take Julie to Albany and raise them her, and raise her themselves. Mort left for St. Louis, taking both children with him. Joan's parents came to collect Julie from there. It was a strained, unpleasant interview. Joan's mother told Bill's parents, "Quote: I hope that Bill Burroughs goes to hell." and stays there. The children never saw each other again. Aww. Yeah. Burroughs said he thought of Joan every day of his life. She was a permanent presence in his life, which many people believe to be true. It did, it did tear him up inside what had happened. March 1952, Bill told Allen that he had begun work on a new novel that could be seen as part two of Junk or Red Complete in itself, he said Dennison was still the main character, that he had shifted to a third-person narrative. It was all about his relationship with Marker, known in the book as Allerton. He passed the time by writing and attending bullfights and cockfights. Quote, I like my spectacles brutal, bloody, and degrading. In April, Allen Ginsberg finally persuaded Carl Solomon to, pup to publish Junk as an ace paperback original for, original for an $800 advance. It was to be called Junkie, with an IE, since the publishers thought that junk might be taken as a value judgment on the text. They didn't want to put out a, a book called Junk because they didn't want people thinking the book was junk. 
Yeah, 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 I can see that. 1977, Burroughs changed the spelling of the of the revised edition to Junkie with a Y, which it has remained ever since. Now began months of provocation and stalling on the part of Ace, who demanded to see the new material Burroughs was writing and incorporated into Junkie. One complication came over Solomon's suggestion that part two be called Fag. Burroughs told Allen he did not mind being called queer, quote, T.E. Lawrence, in all a matter of right, Joe's, was queer, but I'll see him castrated before I'll be called a fag. That's just what I've been trying to put down. I mean, in this distinction between us strong, manly, noble types, the leap and the leaping, jumping, window-dressed cocksuckers, for Christ's sake, a girl's got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> so he saw himself as, uh, he didn't mind me calling queer, he saw himself as a, as a man. And men weren't known as fags. That was for the uh, the crossdressers or or for the, the the very the feminine types. Ah, okay. I I knew uh, I knew a gay man many years ago before I uh, long before I ever met you, who uh, was the same way. He guy came up. We were in a, sitting down in a restaurant. I believe it was Steak and Shake, and I met him. We're talking. Guy came up. He told me he was gay. And a guy came up, and he was very effeminate. And when he walked away, he said, God, I hate fags. It's like, aren't you gay? He's like, no, there's a big difference between what he is and what I am. And that's kind of the, whether you believe, whether whether that's something you buy into or not, um, that's the same way that Burroughs felt. So he wasn't big on the word fag. Yeah, but Burroughs wasn't very manly. No, not really. But he felt he was more he was manly enough to not be called that name. Okay, I get it. I get it. Burroughs formed a relationship with Angelo. He used his real name in Junkie, with whom he began a 14-month casual affair, seeing him twice a week unless he was on junk and always paying him 20 pesos. Angelo was not queer. He was doing it for the money. He conformed to the romantic stereotype boy in Bill's mind that he later applied to boys in South America, Tangier, and Paris. Burroughs was not promiscuous once he had a uh, found a suitable boy, he stuck with him. So when we say boy, we're not talking like a 12-year-old boy. They're usually between 16 and 20. Okay. Which is still a little young. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not like, well, we're going to meet somebody here not too long who likes him that young. Oh! But um, he uh, he he didn't go after the, the real like little boys. He, he liked older teenagers and younger men. Yeah. In July, Bill received the first quarter of his $800 advance from Ace Books for Junkie, Les Ginsburg's 10% for acting as agent. Ace printed 150,000-plus copies of Junkie when it was finally published in 1953. 21 years later, Burroughs called them to account and collect over $2,000 in overdue royalties. Marker returned to Mexico City but did not contact Bill for five days. Bill was hurt and made something of a scene. Marker told him, quote, why can't we just be friends with no sex? But Bill said the strain would be intolerable and put so much pressure on him that he finally agreed to have sex once or twice a month. But the strain was too much for Marker, and in October he left once more without riding Bill as much as a card. In a final attempt to reestablish the relationship, such as it was, Burroughs flew to Jacksonville and managed to persuade Marker to accompany him back to Mexico City. His letters from the period suggest that he was severely depressed, Things suddenly came to a head when Gerardo was had to go into hiding after killing the son of a high-level politician, and Bill realized he was no longer protected. Uh, 
the the kid was in a car with his friends and they were fucking around and they sideswiped Bernardo's uh, Rolls Royce. So he got out a gun and started shooting at them and ended up hitting this high-level politician's son and killing him. So he had to go into hiding, which means there was nobody there to pull Bill out of the fire when his ass got too hot. Yeah. So less than two weeks later, Burroughs was safely ensconced in the bosom of his family in Palm Beach. Bill's parents had moved from St. Louis to Palm Beach in the spring of 1952 to avoid the harsh St. Louis uh, winters. They get pretty fucking bad. Yes, they do. So you can't blame them. And that was back before Florida was Florida. (laughs) So uh, early January 1953, he set off on his long muted trip to Panama. He was to spend eight months essentially alone in search of Yahe in the jungles of South America, an exploration that would take him to Panama, Colombia, Peru, and briefly back to Mexico City. Burroughs ends junkie with the lines, Maybe I'll find Yahe what I was looking for in junk and weed and coke. Yahe may be the final fix. He was not traveling for material, but out of it came a book, The Yahe Letters and a series of characters and sets that informed his writing for the rest of his life. Now, when I say sets or routines, that it, sets are like the where the places are set at, the locations, and routines are like uh, almost like acts, like in a, okay. in a movie. So he had all these routines that he had in his head, and they were just like scenes in a movie that he you know put on paper. Burroughs arrived in Bogota on January 20th, met Dr. Richard Evans Schultz, known as Dr. Schindler in the Yahe Letters, who worked at a botanical institute. He showed Bill dried specimens of Yahe vine and said when he tried it, he saw colors but had no visions. After five days, Bill left Bogota for Pasto en route for Putumayo. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. So many goddamn words. From from the from the Spanish words down in Mexico to the Span- to the Spanish words in Morocco to the French words in Paris, I apologize to everyone. He's not he's not so good with the foreign languages. I'm not so good with the speaking. Uh, a few days later, he was in Moca, the capital of Putumayo, and the end of the road. From there, transport was by mule or canoe. He found a helpful Indian, and within ten minutes, had a yahe vine. But the Indian refused to prepare it, insisting that it was a, the monopoly of the brujo, or black magician. Bill's brujo, a drunken fraud, was crooning over a man prostrate with malaria when Bill found him. Bill believed that the brujo drove the evil malaria spirit out of his patient and into the gringo, because he came down with malaria exactly two weeks later. He agreed to prepare the yahe and... He misappropriated half the vine, so Bill got very little effect. Yeah, he felt like he drove the malaria from his patient to him. Yeah. And then he had malaria from it. When in actuality, he probably just got bit by a fucking mosquito because they're everywhere. Yeah, and, you know, two weeks to get a virus. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they didn't really know back then. Well, he had medical training. He should have known something. Bill's next experiment with Yahe nearly killed him. So we got one guy who didn't know how to make, he made it too weak. Well, here's one that's going to make it way too strong. The black magician did some ceremonial waving of hands and pouring of liquids, but eventually he poured some black liquid into two dirty red plastic cups. The liquid was oily and phosphorescent. He handed one to Bill, who drank it right down, anticipating the bitter taste. 
The Brujo downed his. The effect on Bill was instantaneous. Within 10 seconds, the room began spinning. Blue flashes passed in front of his eyes, and he saw Easter Island heads carved out of the support post on the hut. He rushed for the door, banging his shoulder. He leaned against the tree and vomited violently. He was completely delirious for four hours, vomiting every 10 minutes. Crouching on all floors, all fours by a rock, gasping, thrown by waves of nausea. It turned out that the Brujo had given a similar dose to a man just a month before. The man ran into the jungle, and they found him in convulsions. He died. The Brujo had given Bill an overdose that he had not puked. If he if he had not puked it up within 20 seconds, could have been fatal. Holy shit! He later he later met an Indian from Vapus. Another region where they had found a very different method of preparing yahe. The infusion was a light red color. He had blue flashes and slight nausea, but no hallucinations or vomiting. The effects were like marijuana. His visa expired, so Burroughs had to leave Colombia. Over the next few weeks, he would travel his way back up through South America, experimenting with yahe multiple times. So he finally found a way that it, it felt pretty good for him. Burroughs flew to Panama, where he was reconciled with Garver. Then he sent se- he spent several weeks in Mexico City looking for Marker. He had sent him ten letters, but received no reply. Burroughs felt the pain ease a little. Then an acquaintance said that he had seen Marker in the streets about a month before. Quote, A wave of misery and pain hit me like a mainline shot, settled in the lungs and around the heart. Then I knew I was hung up on M, just the same as ever. In August, he stopped briefly in Palm Beach to see his parents and young Billy, although the purpose of publishing Junkie under a pseudonym was to prevent his parents from seeing it. He could not help but mention that he had published a book. He told them it was written under a pseudonym, but that they didn't think that he didn't think that they would be interested in reading it. While in Florida, he located Marker, who had returned to his hometown of Jacksonville, where he had bought a house and divided it up into apartments for sale. Bill still found him attractive, but now knew he had to move on to control his feelings. So it's one of the few times where he finally says, I'm still obsessed with this person, but I have to do, I have to let him go. Yeah. So Bill went to New York. Bill and Alan had not seen each other for six years. The time Alan and Neil Cassidy had had visited Bill briefly in East Texas, but they had been continu- but they had been in continuous correspondence and had worked closely on the editing and publication of Junkie with Ace Books. Burroughs dropped right to Ginsburg's social scene. During four months in New York, he consolidated his friendship with Alan. He got to know Gregory Corso, Alan's somewhat live-in boyfriend, and met Alan Anson, Alan number three. Yay, Alan number three. Who has become who will become one of his lifelong friends. You'll hear about him as much as you'll hear about Ginsburg. He and Allen Ginsburg typed up his uh, Burroughs' long letters to Ginsburg from Peru and Ecuador and arranged them to make a continuous narrative, taking part of one letter and adding it to another. The dates of the book are not necessarily dates in the letters was written. These became an apostolary novel, then called Yahe, filled with his experiences on the effects of the drug and its significances, as well as hilarious descriptions of his trials and tribulations in search of it. They also retyped queer, adding new material. Clean manuscript copies were then typed by Alan's friend, Alan Lee. Alan number four. Number four. And it's actually, it's, I think, I believe it's Aline. It's A-L-E-N-E. So it's not quite Alan, but it's, it's close enough to be fucking confusing. 
Burroughs' life from 1944 until 1953, with the obvious admission of his marriage to Joan, was now written. It was published by Lawrence Falinghetti as the Yahe Letters in 1963. So it's, it's going to be a while before that comes out. Queer is not published until 1985. Huh. Junkie comes first, then Queer, then the Yahe Letters, but they're not put out in that order. He doesn't want to write about queer because when, when he writes about queer, he has to write about Joan. And it's something he is paralyzed to do. Yeah, that... Which I can understand. Yeah, because he killed her. Allen's Ginsburg, tenement window, looked out over a fire escape and backyard with laundry lines strung from building to building, level upon level of metal stairs and wires all connected. Burroughs conceived of the futuristic city of Interzone, with its levels connected by a web of catwalks, boardwalks, and fire escapes, a great labyrinth of alleyways and passages, squares, and tunnels, a city so old that it had collapsed on itself and been rebuilt one building upon another, layer upon layer. Sounds pretty neat, I think. It does. As he described the idea to Ginsburg, he gave the city a vibrating, soundless hum, like an insect's wings or larval entities waiting to be born. The imagery of the naked lunch was being developed. Allen's role as the receiver of long, intimate letters from Central and Latin America, and now his confidant, collaborator, and editor in New, in New York had quickly led to an affair. Quote, Bill became more and more demanding that there be some kind of mental schlup. It had gone beyond the point of humorous and playful. It seemed that Bill was demanding it for real. Bill wanted a relationship where there was no holds barred to achieve an ultimate telepathic union of souls. Burroughs' concept of schlupping the complete merging of soulmates into one entity came from his close and imaginative reading of William Wilhelm Reich, who saw that the point of orgasm was to fuse two organ fields of sex partners into one organ gnome. So... <clears throat> they both had to sit in the box together. Uh, well, he believed if you're having because um, he believed most of the stuff that was wrong with a person was pent up sexual energy. So you didn't have to sit in the box if you were having sex with each other. That got rid of the sexual energy. Point was that you were both supposed to have orgasms together, which leads, released all the organ fields into one giant organ gnome, and a big ball of Come, I guess. I don't oh fucking know. Just ropes and ropes of it. That's so fucking weird. Ginsburg's own sexual preferences was for younger, straight uh, straight men who were making an exception for him. Bill was 12 years older and gay. It was Alan who was making the exception because of his love and respect for Bill. When Bill began taking taking serious, or when Bill began talking seriously of taking Alan with him to Tangier, Alan blurted out, quote, but I don't want your ugly old cock. <laughs> Bill began to act to actively plan his move to Europe. For those of you who know where Tangier is, it's part of um, Morocco, just below the Strait of Gibraltar by Spain. Uh, becomes pretty important. Burroughs left for Rome on T.S. Nia Helis on December 1st, 1953. You okay over there? I don't want your old cock. <laughs> It was 
winter, and it was cold when Burroughs arrived in Rome on December 12, 1953. He did not like it at all. Alan Anson finally arrived, which cheered Bill up. Burroughs had not bothered to see any of the Roman sites, but Anson managed to drag him out, telling Alan Ginsberg, quote, the fountains are wonderful. Burroughs was not convinced and booked passage to Tangier. Alan Anson went on to Venice, where he lived for a number of years, making frequent trips to Tangier to visit Bill. Burroughs was about to make a fresh start in a new country where no one knew him. Tangier was very important. It was here where Burroughs became a writer. It's where he became a real writer. Most of the Naked Lunch and Inner Zone was written here. The talking asshole routine in Dr. Benway, Marv, Clem, AJ were all developed here. It was where Bill achieved happiness for the first time since the killing of Joan, but it was also where he had endured his worst ever phase of drug addiction. So the drug addiction hasn't even really started yet. Oh. It'll be like episode four when we finally get to what they consider the drug years. Oh. Yeah. That was my stomach. Uh huh. By April 22nd, he was already with Kiki, a Spanish boy who was featured in his dreams for the rest of his life. Kiki must have been 15 to 18 years of age when he met Burroughs. One of the first people Burroughs met in Tangier was David Woolman, who lived in the room next to his at a brothel. He appears in Naked Lunch as Marv. Bill enjoyed Woolman's company, was always disturbed by his preference for young boys. Bill told Allen, quote, Ginsburg, no lower age limit on boys. An American I know keeps thir- keeps a 13-year-old kid. If they can walk, I don't want them. Bill and Dave. Oh, here's another one for you. Bill and Dave paid 60 cents to watch two Arab boys screw each other. The boys protested saying, Molo, it's bad. It's bad to do this. And then they began giggling. David said, see, si, molo schmolo, totos molos, all bad. Bill used this report in almost verbatim in the black meat section of Naked Lunch. Bill used this in Naked Lunch to purposely annoy his readers and undermine their middle class values. So he'd put stuff in his books just to see if he could piss people off. I mean, I like pissing, pissing people off. On yeah, purpose, but with pedophilia? But no, <laughs> fuck no, fuck. Uh, uh, oh. That's dirty. Bill discovered Eucadol within days of arriving in Tangier. In less than two months, he reported to Allen Ginsberg, I'm hooked. Some stuff called Eucadol, which is best junk kick I ever had. Start Dolly Cure in a few do- few days now. Dollies were dolf- dolophine and now known as methadone. Eucadol was di- dihydroxycodinone, a morphine substitute. Mm-hmm. So more morphine pretty much. Uh, it's the Equate version, I guess. <laughs> uh, by the beginning of April, Bill was shooting Eucadol every four hours. He had told Allen Ginsberg, quote, God knows what kind of habit I'm getting. When I kick this habit, I expect fuses will blow out of my brain from overcharge and black sooty blood will run out, uh, run out eyes, ears, nose. Rumors soon spread that Bill was a drug addict. The newly appointed British police chief, Gerald Richardson, already referred to him as Morphine Mini. He had been in Tangier less than four months, and the police were aware of him. In the second week of May, Bill tried to kick. He was shooting Eucadol every two hours, so he paid $50 to an Englishman named Eric Gifford to bring him food and dole out dolophine over 10 days. Burroughs used him as the model for Leaf the Unlucky in the Naked Lunch. Gifford, Gifford's best efforts to help Bill kick did not work, and by June 16th, Bill was back shooting every two hours. It was the worst habit he ever had. 
from taking so many shots, he had an open sore where he could slide the needle right into the vein. The sore oh. stayed open like a red festering mouth. And that is where we will pick up for William S. Burroughs, part three. That's, jeez. I told you in the last episode it was going to get worse. It's not going to get any better. It's going to continue to get bad and bad and bad. I, and I keep asking myself, how can it get worse? And then I hear this shit, and it's like, how is it going to get worse from here? Well, he um, well, he hasn't met Ian yet. He hasn't met Brian yet. Um, Billy Jr. hasn't come to live with him yet. Um, he hasn't gone back to New York. Uh, he hasn't gone to the Beat Hotel yet. There's still uh, the Bunker, which are the drug years. Uh, Colorado. Uh, nothing settles down until he finally gets to Kansas City, and that's a long ways away. You're in for a ride. All of you are in for a ride. Oh, uh, God. He, it's sickening. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's a hell of a fucking story. That, this man's life would make a great miniseries. I wouldn't do a TV show because it's a you know it's a biography. I wouldn't do a movie because there'd be so much shit you have to skip over. A mini, an HBO miniseries, this thing would be fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, we're running pretty long. Um, let's do uh, the the Twitters and the Instagrams, Stephanie. We are, we are at Audio Parfait on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Open A F. N book. Effing. Effing. But F-ing. Oh, yeah. Effing. F-I-N-I-N-G. O-P-E-N-A-F-I-N-G-B-O-O-K. And I am at E-C-J-B-A-T on Twitter and Instagram. I am young, E-T-A-M. That's Y-O-U-N-G-E-T-A-M. Um, shoot us an email, info at audioparfait.com. Go to our website, audioparfait.com. Um, still doing this whole transition over to a new hosting site, so we'll hopefully get all the... Uh, Stuff taken care of there. Getting our Patreon going. I'm hoping by the end of this whole series we'll be able to have the Patreon up and going and uh, you guys can start uh, letting us know really what you think. Showing us uh, your love and, and helping us out if you feel so obliged. I think that's all we got. William S. Burroughs Part 3 coming next week. So prepare yourselves for that. Yeah, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, yeah, you gotta, yeah, it's definitely something you have to prepare for. Uh, so take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. And until we get to talk to you next time, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.